I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 as we get into God's Word. You know, when we read through the Bible, uh, sometimes we might have a tendency to think that these are a bunch of stories that just have good morals to them. But the Bible is actually one comprehensive account that explains the brokenness of the world, our brokenness, the brokenness of humanity as well as God's plan for redemption through Jesus. Uh, Romans chapters one through four is really Paul's version of the entire biblical account. Um, It's also called the gospel. We read in chapter one that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, You've got this on your outline. Chapters one through three are really Paul's analysis of what's wrong with the human race and in a word, it's sin. And right in the middle of the word sin is the letter I. And that really is the heart of sin. I. It's me. Um, These verses give us basically that we're looking at today the strongest statement in the Bible of what's wrong with the human race. Um, The Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a story uh, that reveals the really disturbing truth about all of us. The story was called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, how many of you have seen a version of that on television or a movie? You know, I thought, I, I know that I've seen probably a couple different ones. I actually looked to see how many different versions there actually are of that movie. There are 153 versions of that movie. Surely you've all seen one of them. No, I mean, it's like, that was a lot. Anyway, it's the story of this respected physician and medical researcher who was just just an example of morality and decency. Uh, But he would do these experiments on himself that would turn him into a a ruthless murderer. And um, boy, it was really different from the public persona that he gave off. It was Chuck Swindoll who said one time that uh, at the heart of great literature, you will often find good theology. And the theology that we see in the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the sinfulness of man. We have a sin nature. Um, Maybe it's so popular because we see ourselves in that story. Mark Twain, I, I don't know if he was influenced or not by this story by, um, by Stevenson, but he said everybody is a moon and has a dark side that he or she never shows to anybody else. The central theme of Paul's letter to the Romans is the gospel. We've talked about that, the good news. That's why we're calling the series The Gospel According to Romans. Um, but in order to get to the good news, as we've said before, We have to talk about the bad news. Uh, How can we ever understand our desperate need for God? And we do have a desperate need for for him unless we acknowledge the enormity of our own sin. Depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be. Uh, And the good part of us can do some amazingly kind things for people. It's like the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, That's true. Someone with absolute power means that they can do whatever they want and there are no consequences. 
We all deserve the wrath of God. As Paul taught this in the churches that he started, I'm sure that many people raised different questions to him about that and objections about that. And what he does in the passage that we're going to read today is he anticipates some of those objections in the form of questions. So follow along in your Bible uh, with Romans 3, beginning at verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be, be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Well, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. The mouths, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is God's word. So in verses one through nine, in the midst of the questions we might ask, we see, and this is number one on the outline, God's faithfulness. Um, as we study the Bible, we see a pattern emerge that, that God never fails, that God never changes, that he always keeps his word. And when God says he'll do something, he'll do it. He is a faithful God. Numbers 23, 19, has God ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? A, a few years ago, there was an ad on TV that started like this. There was a, a woman sitting in a car, minding her own business, and suddenly this man comes out of the blue, and he rips open the car door, and he yanks out this woman like he's attacking her, and you're looking on in horror, like, what's going on? We're seeing a carjacking right in front, and then they they pan out, 
and you see that the car is actually on fire. And the woman didn't know it. And the man, instead of attacking her, is saving her life. And then the, the ad is for some news station, and it says, you need the big picture. We will give you the big picture. Well, we do need the big picture. And if we focus on God's faithfulness, we have the big picture. That's the big picture, just to focus on who God is. Um, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, great is your faithfulness. You know, we can build our trust on God's proven character because God will, is, will always be true to himself. He will never stop acting like God. He will never cease to be sovereign. He's always sovereign. He's always holy. He's always good. And so the first question that Paul asks and answers has to do with, and this is on your outline, the question of racial advantage. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value in circumcision? Circumcision is kind of Paul's way in shorthand of saying all the law. Um, What difference does it make who's a Jew and who isn't? Well, Paul singles out this one advantage in in, in particular in verse 2. And basically, as it turns out, there's a lot of difference. Uh, It it makes a lot of difference, namely that that the Jewish people were in charge of writing down and caring for God's law, God's revelation to man. The Jewish people received more truth than anyone. Uh, God gave the scriptures to them. They're stewards of God's word. Uh, God, through through the Jewish race, we have Jesus the Messiah. He was a Jew. Uh, through the Jews, we would receive God's invitation for the grace of God, to receive the grace of God. But all of these privileges, Paul's point is, did not make them better off. In fact, the Jews, and this is on your outline, were even more responsible to live up to God's requirements because they had the law, they had God's revelation. The second question is the question of God's faithfulness. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? To say it in another way, does the failure of the Hebrew people to keep their end of the bargain prevent God from accomplishing his plan to save the world? And the answer is no. And then again, on your outline, nothing will keep God from accomplishing his will. Nothing. In fact, God's light shines even brighter in the backdrop of our darkness and the darkness in this world. And to illustrate this, he uses in verse 4, Psalm 51, which is David's psalm of confession after he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And his, this is his psalm of repentance. And he says in Psalm 51:4, the quotations there are, are there's, they're all through this passage. But he says, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And this is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he said, even though we are faithless, God remains faithful. And then the next question is the question of confused righteousness. What Paul is asking in verse 5, look at verse 5 in your Bibles uh, of Romans 3, because God made these moral demands on us, knowing that humanity would fail, does that make his wrath unjustified? 
After all, aren't we all doomed to failure? Uh, And weren't we doomed to failure from the very beginning? Well, the law isn't like a random target. Uh, God's perfectly righteous character has always been the target. The law just makes it clear. The law amplifies, it magnifies the target. And that gives us less of an excuse for missing it. And Paul's going to talk more about this in Romans chapters 4 and 5. We'll get there uh, eventually. Um, And then the next thing you have on your outline, the giving of the law was the first step in God showing us his grace and redeeming us. And then finally, there's the question of of like a twisted logic. And here it is in verses 7 and 8. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let, let us do evil that good may result? In other words, he's saying if God's light shines brighter because of our darkness, then haven't we just glorified God by our sin? So we should just all go out and sin like crazy so God can be all the more glorified. Well, that's twisted thinking. That's bad thinking. Uh, this isn't taking into account the destructive nature of sin. This isn't remembering that uh, there are all kinds of, of things that, that happen because of our sin, that they affect us, they affect other people. Th- that would be like saying, you know, if fires and disasters show people courage, then we should just set more fires. Well, that's just insane. We would never say that. But that's what the people were asking of Paul. It doesn't even sound like a good idea to do something like that. It doesn't even take into consideration the, the victims that would, would happen if, if we did something so stupid. Um, but th- th- there are no victimless sins. Every sin impacts us. If not directly, then indirectly. It impacts the people around us, our family, and our friends. And then look at Paul's final remark at the end of verse 8. Referring to those who would justify their willful sin with such warped logic, Paul says, their condemnation is just. So, on your outline, grace impacts the way we relate to God and changes the way we think and live. The law points us to God's grace. And we have to admit that we're helpless. We have to admit that, that we, we are helpless without God's supernatural intervention, his grace in our lives every day. And so do Jews have an advantage over Gentiles? Well, this is really interesting because look at verse one, back at verse one. In verse one, Paul says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? And he answers much in every way. And then in verse 9, look down at verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And here, Paul answers it differently. He says, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under all the power of sin. So which is it? It, it, Do the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles or don't they? Well, it's yes and no, depending on how you look at it. So think of it this way. Suppose that a multi-billionaire comes to you and he says, I want to do all kinds of good in the world and I want to do it through you. So I'm going to put money, as much money as you need, as, I'm just going to pour money into your bank account and then it's, it's up to you to write checks to people and distribute that and, and you can use it for yourself. So the multi-billionaire comes back after 10 years 
and all of the money, every cent of it, is still in this guy's bank account. He's never used any for himself. He's never used any for other people. If he's written checks, maybe because they're coming from who this person, they maybe think he's poor, doesn't have the money, they think it's a, a bad check, they rip it up and throw it away. So is it available to him? Yes. Do they use it? No. And that's a little bit like what's happening here. In a practical sense, you've gained nothing because you've failed to withdraw funds for yourself. You've failed to, to give them to other people or for them to believe you. And the Hebrew people were given this direct access to God's truth and his word by which they could bless the world. And so just as the Gentiles... This is taking us back to chapter one. Remember it says at the end of chapter one that the Gentiles exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the Gentiles. But in the same way, the Jews in chapter two, it said uh, they turned, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob turned away from God, causing his name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. In other words, the Jew and the pagan are all the same. There's no difference between them. They are all depraved by sin. The second thing that we see in this passage, number two on your outline, is the case of a sinful nature. Paul basically settles the issue of total depravity in a way that leaves no room for argument. Like rabbis would often do, Paul strings together all of these Old Testament quotations. You've got, I think they're all listed on your outline, uh, to lay out the sin nature that all of us have within us. We all want to think that we're not that bad. And Paul is saying that we've all wandered down a spiritual dark alley. We've all lost our way. We all need Jesus. And these are, they're, these are the charges of the ultimate judge of God against all humanity, including you, including me. It was the Russian poet uh, Turgenev who I, thought, I think caught it perfectly. Uh, he said this, he said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. Remember, our righteousness from God's perspective is not about our goodness, even though we might seem to be very good people. Our righteousness <clears throat> has to be built on the perfect righteousness of God and his character. And that happens through Jesus. And then verses 11 and 12, there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. And the idea of to understand is to bring together, like a, a, a puzzle like the pieces of a puzzle to bring them together. You know, when we were on our uh, trip in the steps of the Apostle Paul, um, one of my favorite places to go was the Sistine Chapel. It was so beautiful. I'd seen it before in the 70s, but it was all dark, but it's since been cleaned up. Some Japanese company came in and spent millions of dollars cleaning it up, and it just looked so brilliant. Um, one of the things our guide said, which I thought was interesting, is that they've identified 22,000 different colors. I thought there were like four major colors. It's like 22,000? Uh, anyway, um, Kathy and just was 
and, and we love the Sistine Chapel, and someone gave us a book of the Sistine Chapel, and Kathy got a puzzle of the Sistine Chapel that she laid out on our dining room table, and it's a thousand-piece puzzle, and uh, it, it's still there, and she's been working on it. She's I'm just going to do a couple pieces a day, and I'm like, wait, that's three years. You've got to finish this puzzle. She's actually doing more pieces than that. But if anybody's a good puzzle, all the pieces look alike. Anyway, you can come help us. Um, uh, we need help. <laughs> so, but what is Paul saying here? He's saying that no one seeks God on their own initiative. In John 6:44, you have this uh, verse on your outline. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It was Francis Thompson who wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea of the hound of heaven and, and, and says that uh, we, no one seeks God on their own initiative, but God is like a hound of heaven after you. He's pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. He loves you. And man, that's just so powerful. God is like the hound of heaven. And on our own, we will not accept God's invitation without a special work of God's grace in our lives. He's drawing us to himself. So you've got it on your outline. No one seeks God apart from him seeking us. God is seeking us. And we may seek different things from God. I'm not saying that we won't seek spiritual things. We won't seek spiritual blessing. Uh, We won't seek... Uh, something that, some religion, but we won't seek on our own God as God without the grace of God working in our lives. So if you have a family member who's a believer, know that God is at work in their lives. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if you have uh, unbelieving family members, uh, know that God's working through you in their lives, that God wants to draw them to himself. And so we can pray for them. We should pray for them like crazy. We should use every opportunity we have to let our light shine before the unbelievers in our family so that they might see our good works and glorify our God. That's, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5. And to do everything we can to invite them to places where they will hear the good news of, of the gospel, where, where they can find out about how to have a relationship with God. Uh, God will give you the words to talk to them. And, and, and you should. And look for that opportunity. Uh, and they want to especially see it lived out in your life. And so they're going to look at your life. Uh, verse 12 says, All of us have turned away. They have Uh, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So again, all these quotes from the Old Testament. So the idea of turned away is literally to turn aside, to deviate. Uh, We turn away, we turn aside from God. God alone can fulfill our deepest longings. And when we look for satisfaction in all the different ways that humans can look for satisfaction, we come up empty every single time. Uh, It just takes us further away from God, if anything. Those are just all efforts in self-salvation. In a sense, it just makes us worse. So grace means that we come to God with empty hands. And that is so hard for us to do. We always want to say, God, look at all that I've done for you. 
I've done this and I've done that. And, and our natural tendency is, is to, to point to, to all of our good works. We don't receive salvation just from repenting of our sins, but we have to have open hands to receive the grace of God. John 1 gives us this amazing invitation. And it says this in John 1, starting in verse 11, even in his own land and among his own people, the Jews, Jesus was not accepted. Only a few would welcome and receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. Wow, what a promise. What an invitation we have. And then the next thing we see in verses 13 and 14 is the case of a sinful tongue. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. And Paul here again, drawing on the Psalms, drawing on the prophets, he's saying, hey, what I'm telling you is rooted in the Psalms and the prophets. This is nothing new that I'm telling you. And so often we know that our words convey what's on our heart. You know, we talk about Freudian slips. Uh, That's what's really on our hearts. Our our words practice deceit, it says. And our words go on deceiving. And this is broadly focused on anyone who's deceptive. Practicing any false religion is no better than convincing a, a cancer patient that they should just take an aspirin and they'll be fine. Again, it just points us away from God. It's only Jesus who can save us. And in verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And the reality is, and this is on your outline again if you're taking notes, that we tend to think of God especially when things aren't going well. Know that if you're going through a hard time, God is using that to draw you closer to himself than maybe you've ever been. When we're content because everything's going well and and we've got all the creature comforts that we need, we might shoot up a prayer of thanksgiving and say, Lord, thank you for the blessings. But I think it's fair to say that people generally don't seek God or search from him when everything is going great in their lives. And in these last verses, again, quoting Psalms. The next one, number four, is the case of sinful acts. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. They ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. You know, in 1954, William Golding uh, wrote a book called The Lord of the Flies. Uh, Have any of you read that book? Yeah, hands go up. You know, I was thinking about this this week and I, I, I read this in English class my sophomore year of high school. And it was soon after I read this book that I became a Christian. And this book is so depressing that I think that was, maybe God was using the, 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 this horrible book in my life to point me to him, to show me how bad my sin is. But the book tells the story of these British schoolboys who are, get stranded on an island, a small island. And um, they're, they're shipwrecked there, they're creating their own little society, uh, getting food to eat and shelter and safety and, and even have a, a signal fire that they keep going to try to attract uh, help from a passing ship. But it didn't take long for some of the boys, the majority of them, to give up on their society of kindness and helping each other. And they become vicious towards each other. 
and even kill some of their own friends, the weaker ones, to get what they want. There are a small group of them that choose to remain civilized. And, and the main reason for those who were, who were kind to each other versus those who weren't is that those who were kind had the hope of being rescued. They had that hope uh, because they felt like they would, be, they would be held accountable for their actions. And those who had no hope <clears throat> did whatever they wanted. We don't have to just hope. We can rely on God's faithfulness. That's what Paul's saying here. We can rely on his promises and, and we can have hope in him. There's no fear of God before their eyes, it says in verse 18. Those who oppose God's goodness should tremble because of his power. And at some point, we should all experience that kind of fear of God. That's a, there's a healthy fear of God. Godly fear, you've got this on your outline, leads us to repentance and a restored relationship with God. And we all know that many will continue to ignore God as well. And again, these verses, just Old Testament quotes. And then finally, in verses 19 and 20, we have the case of the law. Uh, Paul concludes by giving a clarification of the law and explaining why God gave it. And so it's like he writes in Galatians 3, and Paul says, the verse is on your outline, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So look again at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's what Paul's saying here. We're all accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's the purpose of the law. And notice we become conscious of our sin not our sins, it's our sin nature that we're conscious of. Uh, one theologian, Addison Leach, who at one, it was uh, married to Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary whose husband Jim Elliot died, uh, Dr. Leach taught at, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and he said if sin were blue, we would all be blue all over. Because that's our nature. We, we have a sin nature. God gave the law because he knew that the, the bad news of our sinful condition would lead to the good news of the gospel. And so thank God for his law. Thank God for his relentless, loving confrontation of our sin. Martin Luther got it right. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He said this, the principal point, therefore, of the law in true Christian theology is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin by the knowledge thereof that, that they may be humbled and terrified and bruised and broken by this me and by this means be driven to seek comfort and so come to faith in Christ. And so again, on your outline, there's a cure for the disease of sin, but we have to accept the diagnosis. The laws like railroad tracks, they direct us in the right way, but the tracks themselves won't get us there. That's why Paul spends these first three chapters telling us what a doctor should tell us if he discovers something wrong with our bodies. The truth 
He should tell us the truth. If we have cancer, we want to know we have cancer so we can treat it if it's possible. And God will no more tolerate sin in our lives than we would tolerate the presence of cancer in our bodies. It's like like a good oncologist, a great physician, doesn't show us our guilt merely to shame us. He doesn't say shame on you. No, and, and then leave us to die. Uh, he's, the Lord offers us a 100% effective remedy, and it's ours for the asking. Like we read about in John chapter one. You know, if we just glance a few pages ahead in, in Romans chapter five, at the beginning of Romans five, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, there's a lot of good news in Romans. It starts with bad news but it gets better, it does. I mean, it, it gets better because we see so clearly our sin. The gift of freedom from sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross and it's been offered to each one of us. And to receive this healing, we must believe and receive this gift, the gift that he's given us. Uh, the gift of freedom from his son was paid for for us. So we need to take advantage of that. You know, some years ago, there was an Arthur Murray dance instructor who was out partying and, and having a, a great time and um, went back to his hotel room, fell on his bed, didn't even get undressed. He was just exhausted. And um, the next morning was Sunday. He heard his clock radio go off. How many of you remember clock radios? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but he heard a man speaking. And the man asked a question that he had never heard before. And the question was this. If in the next few moments some great disaster should happen and you should be killed, if you should find yourself before God and he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? The dance instructor didn't have an answer. He was a talkative guy. He would talk all the time, but he was speechless. He did not know what to say. The man who was speaking was Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he explained the answer, and this dance instructor was a man named Dr. James Kennedy, who was the pastor for many years of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church um, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, but he put his faith in Christ that morning after thinking about that, that question. Um, and then he came up with a tool called Evangelism Explosion that used that question as the center part of his method of evangelism that led thousands of people, has led thousands of people to Christ. So what's your answer? I want to end by asking you that same question. Unless the Lord comes back, hope he does, hope he does soon, someday you'll die. And you'll stand before God. And if God says to you, what right do you have to be in heaven? Man, it's so tempting for us to say, Lord, look at all that I've done for you. I've, I've taught here, I've been faithful here, I've done this and I've done that. And, and we might think, you know, this is the way I thought before I was a Christian. It's the way I think a lot of people think. I just need to make sure the scales are 51% towards doing good things. 
And then I'll get into heaven because I've done more good things than bad. That's not the answer. If you want justice, and we think that, we think we just want justice because we've done more good things than bad. Oh, you'll get justice. That's what we all deserve. We all deserve hell. But by the grace of God, we have Jesus. And so what's the answer? The answer is nothing. I bring nothing to, to, to you to get into heaven. It's only by the grace of God through Jesus. And having received him, that's the only way I can get into heaven. That's the answer. Not to hold on to anything else. The Bible says that your good works, however fine they are in your eyes, will not and cannot save you. As we've seen it in, in this passage in Romans, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good, not even one. And God has perfectly revealed himself in the form of Jesus and moved only by grace. It's like looking in the, to the lost, like looking in a mirror and we see our sin and we know we need Jesus. We know we need so, something else. And so do we orient our lives around righteousness? As a believer, that's what we're called to do. As an unbeliever, we cry out for the grace of God. And I, I didn't have a, a, a prayer to pray. I didn't have a booklet that had a, a really thoughtful prayer about how to become a Christian. There's no formula that makes you a, 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 that of a prayer you have to pray. I just remember saying, Lord, I need you. But, but if I could have had a prayer that would, would have been something like this, I know my sins have put a barrier between you and me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to pay the complete price for my sins as and for dying in my place. I trust in Jesus alone to forgive my sins. And I accept his gift of eternal life. I ask Jesus to be my savior and my Lord. And I ask you that for accepting me, I thank you for that. And now I want to commit my life to you. I want to be the person you want me to be. I want to long for you. And I know that most of you have done that. But man, if you haven't, do it. For the love of God, for the grace of God, by the grace of God, do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please help us all to live by the power of your word. To, to live with the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. As we believe in Jesus, we thank you for giving us the bad news about our sin but also the good news about Jesus who died on the cross for us. Lord, we can't do this on our own. There's no way we can. We're so weak. We're so sinful. But we thank you for the grace of God. We want to live in the power of that grace every day of our lives. Thank you for this time together. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen.